Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, great to have you with me again. I'm Aaron Noonan. This is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care, available at Repco in Australia and New Zealand, as well as a range of other auto stores. Now, if you're a long-time listener of this podcast, you'll know that we've got a very special relationship and connection with the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama in Bathurst. It's full of amazing history, and the whole team here at V8 Sleuth, well, we love our history. The museum is a must visit at any time you're in the region, either on a race week or any other time during the year. But how does it all come together? How do these cars and bikes and amazing pieces of memorabilia end up finding a home in the museum? What are some of the considerations that come into play? How does this all happen? How does it all work? There's a whole pile of stuff that you've probably never stopped to ponder or wonder. I've pondered and wondered, and there's one man to go to to talk to about this. And being race week, this bonus special episode of the pod takes us to a chat with the coordinator of the museum, Brad Owen, who I reckon has one of the best jobs in Australia. Now, how he came to hold this position is a story with a V8 Sleuth connection all of itself. And I sat down to talk to him about this and so much more. I think it's a really great insight into the goings-on behind the operation of one of the great motorsport museums that you'll be able to visit. So settle in, enjoy this bonus Bathurst 1000 Race Week episode. Brad Owen on the V8 Sleuth podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care. Brad, is it true that you have the best job in Australia? Look, I'm biased, but I reckon it's it's got to be on the podium if it's not the number one. What is a regular day? I, I mean, at the probably we need to rewind actually here because you've been there for what five, six years now, five and a half now. So yeah, yep. it's it's been my it'll be my fifth Bathurst one thousand. Yep, and uh, yeah, all of those other things that happen in between. And do you call this a real job? Do you have other people say that can't be a real job that you get to hang around Bathurst race cars at Bathurst all the time? Surely you can't claim to everyone all the time that this is a hard, difficult, terrible job. Look, um, and like you know, sometimes you're very careful about the bit you tell people about. You know, we are local government, so there are some local government things and some bureaucracy and all of that stuff. But the bit that you tell everyone, that's the bit that people don't really believe that that's anyone could actually do that for a living. And you get to do it five, six days a week. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Take me back to... How was it that you came to end up running the National Motor Racing Museum, what, five and a half years ago? Well, actually, it's and you've, you've told the story a couple of times, I know, but this is a story that you're vaguely involved with as it happens. Um, because it is local government, council just put an ad in all of the usual places, so they have emails and, and local paper and things like that. And uh, thanks to your good self, I think the V8 Sleuth website shared that ad and said, hey, you know, how about this for a job? And my brother, uh, who's also into cars and, and motor racing, shot me this email going, hey, mate, have a go at this. This is like you all over. And um, I went, wow, this is really kind of interesting. And I was living in Melbourne at the time, had been there for about 20 years. And I went home and said to my wife, well, um, this this job right. And you know how we always said I'd only move away from Melbourne for about two jobs. Well, this is the one. And, um, yeah, the, the rest was history. You know, I applied for the job and went through the interview process and was fortunate enough to get selected for it, I guess, on the basis of um, my background and, um, you know, some of the things I've done before I came to the museum. And when you say background, are we talking about the car background or the museum background or a bit of both? Well, um, this job is, is really a to museum professional role. So it was my museum background and experience. So I've done uh, some postgraduate study in, in museum studies. Uh, I've also, prior to here, I've been at another museum for about 20 years. So it was the museum world and the fact that I'm a little bit of a car person, to say the <laughs> least, um, probably just helped get over the line. And that's, uh, you know, it's a rare combination. You know, there's lots of us out there that love cars and love motorsport. Um, there's 
quite a few people that are into uh, you know museums and do that as a profession, but there's not too, too much crossover there. Are you a racing tragic? Have you always been a, a racing hardcore fan? Yeah, look, I, I have been. Um, back back when I was a kid um, in country Victoria, my uncle had a Holden dealership um, and it was at the heyday of the Brock 80s Marlborough Holden dealer team, Mobile Holden dealer team era. So we'd get all the posters and the stickers and all the stuff and you do not want to ask me what happened to all that stuff because it hurts. But uh, let's just say most of it's not here anymore. Uh, but we got all that stuff and, you know, so therefore – you couldn't help in that period but to just love the touring car racing. Um, also, all of the other aspects of the sport as well, so F1 uh, and some of the other stuff that you'd see around. And we'd also, you know, had a lot of cars around, probably just through my uncle's dealership. We'd seen a lot of that stuff in that era. And it was kind of, you know, it was the 80s, so it was a great era for some of those really special cars that made the Bathurst Legion. And there was still a whole bunch of things like GT Falcons and Tiranas and stuff on the road that people were using as cars. So um, sort of got a bit obsessed by all of that. And, uh, yeah, it continued on. So when I went to uni, I was, you know, doing the late night VHS taping everything and watching it again and again and again. And, you know, um, those tapes are probably still at mum and dad's place somewhere. And um, eventually I'll you know, find a machine and play them and go, oh, man, look at how bad this is, really. <laughs> When you said before about studying from a museum perspective, I think a lot of our, our listeners would think, well, hang on a minute, what's there to do? You just put some cars in there, put some stuff on the walls, give it a bit of a wipe down every now and then, greet people as they come in and out, take some money off them. Uh, what actually, what requirements, what qualifications, what actualities do you need to have to be able to do this? Because it's not a simple, let, let me put it this way, you're dealing with um, – Australian motorsport slash Australian sporting artifacts being the cars or the equipment or the paraphernalia that goes with them. If you tallied up the value of this stuff that's in that museum at any one given time, we have to be talking millions of dollars. So you need to be qualified to deal with that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, you know, museum industry is very much like a lot of other places, you know, it's not just all one bit. So in the bigger museums, you have people who are specialists in the front end, um, you know, the visitor experience stuff, the retail side, the curatorial side, the exhibition display, maintenance, all of that stuff. In smaller museums like this one and some of the uh, many other ones around the place, you have to be a little bit more versatile. So um, I was fortunate enough almost by accident to end up with a degree in history. Um, so from an academic point of view, writing stories, writing essays, writing things to put on walls for, to tell people the story of the object or, or the artefact or the exhibition that you're mounting, that, that sort of came into that initial degree. Um, my museum studies is, once again, tries to cover a little bit of the area. So it's a little bit about how to put displays together, how to handle suitable objects, some of the conservation work and some of the management stuff, you know, like all cultural institutions, managing is, is difficult. Um, it's challenging from a, a resource point of view. There are not many, many museums anywhere in the world that sort of complain about having too much money. So there's always a matter of uh, trying to get the most out of the dollars that you've got. Um, and then also a lot of hands-on experience. So uh, I guess being a car person and having my own, um, you know, interesting cars that I love, I've kind of have got used to how to clean those. But some in the museum context, a lot of the cars we get that come in on loan maybe haven't been touched since they last finished their race. You know, the, uh, the SVG car from Adelaide last year is a perfect example. So handling cars like that, um, suitably delicately so you don't take off any of the evidence of their use or when they were last driven, but still being able to move around or care for them and keep them reasonable. Um, a lot of that is based on experience um, as well as some of the kind of university-level um, museum stuff. Um, but, but those museum courses, you know, they cover everything from, uh, you know, manuscripts and fine art and archaeological finds up to what we call large technology objects, so, you know, cars and trucks and trains and aeroplanes and all that sort of stuff. So uh, there's a pretty wide spectrum in the industry. There's no archaeological digs to find cars for the National Motor Racing Museum, but how do – I know there's a lot of cars that live there permanently. They're part of the – they've either been donated to, to council over the years and, and things like that, but do you get people ringing up just saying, hey, look, 
I've got this car. Do you want it? Do you have people who want to be paid? Do you, I guess it's a bit of there's no one way that this all happened. It's a big myriad of possibilities and ways that this stuff can and does happen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we um, the thing that probably blew me away the most in my first 12 months or so at the museum was how many offers we got and the sort of things that we'd get offered. People would ring up and say, oh, I've got this in the shed. And you're thinking, how is that just sitting in a shed? You know, there are some incredible <laughs> things out there and I'm sure there are lots more things tucked away that the owners are not telling you about. Um, and I think probably now after five years or so, earlier in 2023, I had... Uh, the 100th new exhibit come in in my time. So that kind of works out about 20 cars a year. Um, and they don't just come in, they go out because you can't fit any more in unless you get rid of the other ones. So there's been quite a large turnover of cars uh, that we have at the museum, some of which we've brought in for specific uh, exhibition purposes. So a car that needs to tell a story. Other ones are people who have, um, you know, maybe got too many at home and want to rotate one through here and, and show people. There are a lot of owners that really do love having an opportunity for the public to see their cars. Um, and, yeah, it comes about in any number of ways. We have some of the race teams. We have some of the manufacturers, certainly in the past. Uh, we still have a couple of cars from the General Motors collection that were holding collection cars. Um, and then private individuals who have collections. Some, of, some people have large collections and you say, all right, well, we'll have effectively one of your cars here all the time. We'll just rotate it through. We have done that with the Bowden collection over over the years, which has been fantastic support for the museum. Um, yeah, so so they do come from everywhere. And, uh, yeah, in terms of archaeology, no, but I'm sure if you did a, a dig up on the mountain, there'd be all sorts of interesting things from, uh, <laughs> from the Bathurst race, maybe from a social history perspective. That would be a whole other exhibition, and I'm not sure yeah. we could actually have that in the museum just quietly, Brad. Uh, but- you talk about where cars and the the display items come from, but I want to talk a bit about the people that come to the museum. So can you give our listeners an idea of roughly how many people come through this museum every year and where do they come from? Because I'm presuming it's not just everybody from Bathurst coming 10 times a year. You get people who are on trips through that part of the country and think, well, we'll we'll do a lap while we're there. Oh, there's a museum, we'll stop by. People who are coming on a dedicated mission to come, I guess you get a bit of this, that and everything, and do you get them from overseas as well? Look, all of the above is the short answer. Uh, yeah, we get um, this financial year just finished, so 2022 into 23, we had a record number of visitors at the museum at over 43,000, so wow. a, pretty, a pretty decent number. The interesting thing I find, though, is about 20% of those come in the 10 days around the Bathurst 1000. So wow, that's uh, it is just the biggest thing in town. And, you know, everyone that's listening that loves the sport knows that the Bathurst 1000 is the big thing, uh, very much so here in town. Um, I, pro- prior to starting at the museum, the only times I'd ever been to Bathurst was the 1000. So everyone's going, oh, isn't it crazy and busy? It's like, well, no, this is kind of what I'm used to. It's when it's <laughs> a quiet country town that, uh, that it surprises you. But in terms of our visitors, yeah, we have people who, um, my favourite thing is, you know, when you, when you get the people who are doing a road trip from you know, Brisbane to Adelaide or something like that, and they go, oh, I think we'll go three hours out of our way so that we can drive around Mount Panorama because we've always wanted to do it. You have people that are doing the full-blown bucket list thing. You have people that every time we have a new car come in, they come back and you say day. And uh, other people have been watching it since the 70s and have never been here and you know, all of them come back and go, oh, it's much steeper than it looks on TV. Um, and we do get international visitors, you know, particularly when you see the 12-hour on uh, with a much more international focus. A great deal of our visitors do come from overseas. Um, and we do have people from everywhere. Um, only a few weeks ago, we had one car from every state in Australia, at least by their number plates, uh, out in the car park at any one time. And I kind of <laughs> think that's pretty cool. You know, the appeal of the place is, is really massive. It's a big magnet for anyone that's, into motorsport, but a lot of people come here who aren't into motorsport, but they do the they do the Sunday on the couch in October, and that's the only thing that they watch all year. There's so many cars that people have seen on their couch on a Sunday afternoon that they've never seen in person, and they get to see them uh, at the museum. What's the and it's hard. It's it's like picking your favourite kid. It's hard to do. But um, what's the car in that museum that you walk past every day, going to and from your office, and you shake your head and think? I cannot believe I'm standing right next to insert car here. 
Yeah, look, that that really is such a hard one. And because we turn over so many cars, um, I get the opportunity, and it's not all about what I like, and I very much try and, and make it much more general than that, but sometimes you just can't help that the story that you want to tell is actually the one that you know I grew up as a fan of. And even something like um, I'm really fortunate that the first Bathurst race I saw live was 95 and we've got the 95 winner in the museum and, and that's magnificent to have that there. Um, that's really cool. We've got the 76 um, L34 that Bob Morris and John Fitzpatrick drove to win. Um, that's the year I was born. Um, so that one's got a bit of a special pull as well. And, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to drive that car, which is even more amazing, you know. And and it's that sort of thing, you know, you get up close. But it's also, as you said earlier, the people, you know, the fans that have been here that remember that thing and you share the stories. Uh, it's the drivers that drove them. Some of the people that have come through the doors have been quite amazing. And, uh, you know, people who, as a fan, you go, oh, my God, they're amazing people. And then they come through and you just, you know them and they know you. And, uh, yeah, it's really interesting going from the outside on the other side of the fence to kind of being at least on the edge of it and, and, and being some at a place where everyone sort of gravitates to because of that history and the importance of it. I'm surprised that you've got both ears on the side of your head because I'm sure that at times you've had your ear chewed off from whether it's visitors who've come who want to hear more about Bathurst and the cars and, and the museum or it's people telling you about what they've got, what they'd like to bring. Um, it really does – if I if you drew a big whiteboard – and picked people in the sport or in the industry and their connection around the place and drew all the the lines here, there and everywhere, you'd be right in the middle because you deal with so many different elements, whether it's the general public, people who own cars, former drivers, supercars, the industry, the sport. You've got multiple events up there covering GT, supercars, the ARG event later on in the year, Challenge Bathurst. Um, I think I got them all in there. Or is there one I'm missing? There's there's a few. Six hour. Oh, the six hour, of course, the six hour as well, which is part of the ARG um, world as well. So you deal with so many different people. So I guess what I'm saying is there's no – it's a bit like my world. When people say, what's a standard day? There's no such thing as a standard day when you've got so many factors, connections, possibilities that you walk into your office every morning and you don't really know what's going to happen all day. Yeah, correct. And, and, and in fact, that's the thing. You can have a plan, but, uh, you know, the next person that walks through the door that's offering something or wants to talk about something or wants to, you know, do something uh, out of out of the plan, you've just got to roll with it because you just never know what might come of it. Um, one of the things, certainly in my experience in the museum industry, is you just never know what that person coming through the door is going to do or what they have. So everyone, you know, you've got to give them that airtime because... Uh, it's really important. It, it, it helps the collection. It helps tell the story. And a lot of people will tell you things that you'll never read in the books because they were there. They were in that race team. They were working on that car. They saw it from the other side of the fence and they go, well, actually, you know, the books say this, but but here's what actually happened because I was there. And that's really amazing. You know, I, I love racing and I love history and people's stories are the, are the key to all of that. And um, it's really easy, I guess, in our world to be distracted by the fact that it's the machine or the driver, but there are so many other elements to make this sport and the thing, the event happen. Uh, and, and every one of the people in the chain have got those great stories to tell, and it's really, really fantastic. And that's where I guess too that's a reminder that the museum's not just, I mean, the cars and the bikes are the big obvious part of, of the collection and of what's there, but then it's you start to wander around and there's trophies and there's leathers and there's race suits and there's busted panels from various cars from over the years, a crashed car thanks to Chaz Mostert from 2015, which we will talk about. Um, it's that matrix of, of things, but it's, it's, it's probably hubbed more to the cars, but the reality is there's a whole pile of elements that play into all this. But I guess the other thing is too, from talking to various museums and collections over the years, you can't have everything that you have out at any one time. You rotate the cars. Surely there's some stuff that you just can't fit in that you've got to put somewhere else. Surely. The the place is not big enough for everything. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so much stuff that um, you we, we've got, you know, the programs and the tickets and all that sort of stuff, but you can't really 
you don't get much smash out of displaying all of that stuff at once. Um, but you can actually use some of those items to highlight a particular car. Um, it would be great to have all the walls lined with display cases, but then you've got no room to tell stories. So the layout of the museum is obviously quite challenging at times. Um, you don't want to put whole books on the wall. You know, you're doing you out of a service if you're, you're <laughs> yes, writing books to put exactly, on the walls. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, we want, to, we want to sell you one of your books on the way out the door and make a few bucks out of it there. So um, that's um, that's always a challenge. And, and doing that in a way, you know, the other thing – that you have to bear in mind as well is that not all of our visitors are experts in the field. Not all of our uh, visitors know the story. And I always say, you know, for, for us that are real enthusiasts, the real petrol heads, you get a tin shed, you fill it up with racing cars, and those people are just happy because that's really easy. I know I love that, and, and so do a lot of our visitors. But the ones I love are the, you know, the, the slightly, uh, you know, maybe less enthusiastic partner or travelling companion or whoever it is that comes in and goes, oh, I guess I'll come in if you really want me to. And they walk out and they say that it's great. So we've got to be able to tell the story in a way that somebody who's not interested in the sport, somebody who doesn't know about all the cars, the drivers, the events, can take something away from it. You know, a lot of people you'll see... They'll go in and go, oh, I remember Dad had one of those or, you know, we had one of those cars back in the day and we used to drive it everywhere and oh, here's the racing version. So there's a whole range of different stories. Those objects that you talk about, those the pieces of ephemera that were never designed to, to last forever, they they are just as important as the, uh, you know, the million-dollar race car that, that won the race. Um, and striking that balance is really tricky. We do have a bit of a collection in the, in the back room uh, and we rotate that through. And for some of the items, you know, some of the paper items and things like that, you don't want them on permanent display because from a preservation point of view, it's not great for them, too much UV light, all that sort of thing. So we monitor that as well as, as part of what we do in the, in the museum world rather than the, the enthusiast world. You've got a foot in both camps, don't you? You've almost got my museum cap on, keep the artifact good but then your racing cap says oh people love to see that how good's that so you've got to get that uh, that blend between the two things now you spoke before about driving the l34 the 76 uh ron hodgson motors morris fitzpatrick tirana how many of the other cars in the collection at the museum have you been fortunate enough to drive in your time there well we um as you, as you know, probably uh, a little while ago, we did the immersive room shoot. So uh, back in 2019, we decided that the old sort of, uh, you know, very much the, in 1963, Bob Jane and Harry Firth, blah, 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 walking through the, the Bathurst winners um, kind of video that was at the start of the museum was a bit dated and we could probably update and do something a bit different. So we came up with the concept of the immersive room. Um, and as a consequence of, of the way we decided to tell that story we got all of the museum's um, touring car related vehicles out for a photo shoot um, so we ended up having um, quite a selection of interesting cars on the track so all the way from our uh, George Reed special which is a sort of 1940s Australian special then through the series production touring cars of the 60s and then through some of our Bathurst winning cars like the L34, like the Moffat Falcon, the Brock Commodore, the Sierra, and a couple of other uh, interesting toys as well. So um, one of the things, you know, the, the day you tell people about what, what your everyday life is like, the day that I drove three Bathurst winning cars one <laughs> afternoon, that was a good day at the office. Not even uh, Brock did that. He swapped cars <laughs> once, twice, and he didn't drive three to win the race. You got to drive three winners in one day. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, because their value, because their originality, because they're all on old tyres and you don't want to be pushing things, and because of the fact that filming we were doing, we didn't need to be at race pace, it wasn't. It was it was enough to go, I've driven it and I've had some experience of the sound and the feel and the noise, but, you know, none of us need to um, to be qualifying for a F1 slot. You know, we're all a bit too old and too past it to, uh, <laughs> to think that we need to impress anyone with our driving ability. But I have been lucky. I've driven... Um, the majority of those touring cars in the museum. But also we do have our replicas. So we've got the, the Cortina, the Mini, the XR Falcon and the, and the Monaro, and they are road-rich cars. We take people for rides around the track on Father's Day in them. We take them for um, PR events. We take guests in them. Uh, so I've been lucky enough to drive those ones quite a lot. And, um, you know, as, a, as somebody who's into older cars, um, I've had the experience of driving some stuff that I never had driven pro prior to now and, and really enjoy it. So, yeah, that's one of those things where you go, yeah, it's a pretty good job 
when you look at it like that. Uh, when you look at it like that, it's a very good job. <laughs> so, so that one day, what was it? The seventy six car, uh, seventy six car, the eighty four Brock car. I had a little tiny go in the Moffat car, but probably not enough to even call it a drive. Like it was just basically, yeah, it, other people had to go just getting familiar with it and it was getting a bit hot and bothered by then. So I decided I didn't need to. And the 88 Sierra, which, um, you know, every driver, professional race driver, when they were young, talked about being scary. So we all treated that one like, you know, like a little bit of a grenade with <laughs> pin pulled out because its reputation preceded it and uh, none of us wanted to find out what the difference between all the boost and none of the boost was going to do. It's a very wise approach to a, an RS500 uh, Cosworth Sierra. Uh, what do you love most about this job? You've had a long enough time in it now to know what's good, bad or indifferent, but what do you love most about this gig that you can tell our, our listeners about? Look, I think... It, that's a such a difficult question. Um, m- every day that you drive down Panorama Avenue and you see the letters on the mountain, you get the shiver. And everyone, <laughs> all the race drivers talk about it. Everyone that loves this place talks about it, and it still works. You know, five five years in, doing it most days, and it still does it. Um, but I think it's those stories. You know, it's great to be surrounded by these incredible machines. It's great to be able to be in the presence of some truly iconic cars and it's cars that, you know, you saw making history on the mountain, but it's the stories that go with them and it's the people that just turn up for no reason. Like, you know, they're not a, somebody that's said, oh, I'm coming, would you all like to have a talk? It's the ones that come in and you just are blown away by the story that walks in the door by accident. And some of the days where they don't even want to tell you who they are necessarily or they don't want to make a big deal, but if you're at the front, and you get talking and all of a sudden you find yourself talking about this incredible piece of motorsport history. Um, that is that is the great thing. And it's that um, I guess it's almost the, the surprise is the thing that's great. You know, I don't I know that I don't know everything, um, but gee, I love finding out more. And and when somebody walks in the door with that nugget of information, that piece of that wonderful story, that's really fantastic. Uh, that almost sounds a bit like sleuthing. I have to tell you, that's got a bit of a bit of sleuthing about it when you when you put it like that. Now, on a race weekend, we mentioned earlier, there's you know five events over the course of the year of different categories and different cars and different race formats. But I reckon the one thing that stays the same, and you can point out to what level this is right or wrong, that you must have your antenna up for car parts. Because at the end of the day, when people have crashes and there's various bits and pieces lying around, unless the team is selling it off for beer money for their crew for the for the Sunday night, surely some of that stuff has to end up in the museum because that's where, I mean, it's useless to use on a race car ever again and you put it on the wall or put it in a box or whatever it might be. Is that a case that at the race weekends now, because you've been there a while, people are coming to you with, basically stuffed things that you can say, sure, let's take that off your hands. Or are you out there keeping a bit of an eagle eye on what's out the back of pit garages up and down the lane? Look, um, we haven't quite evolved to the them coming to us stage yet, Um, but certainly uh, I I have been known to go over and um, kind of annoy people until they just give me a part of the car to go away and and hang it on the wall. Um, (laughs) I've probably had most success in the 12-hour race, to be honest, usually around the, the Bathurst 1000, we're so busy that I don't really, almost don't have the time to kind of to, to do that. Um, and the other thing we've noticed is a lot of the composite and carbon fibre stuff in the modern cars, they're much more repairable probably than they used to be in the old days and getting the bits is harder. Um, when you look at some of the things on the wall, and I guess the TAFE team probably helped that along, there's a lot of stuff from that. 80s era that the TAFE team would fix cars that were crunched up in practice or or the race, uh, and then they might have been presented to the TAFE team and made their way over here. Um, but one of the things I probably do a little bit more in race week is I take advantage of when the circus comes to town and trying to line up collectors or race teams and things for loaning for, for the next exhibition or the next project. Um, in terms of chasing the bits, um, there are a lot of fans that you see hanging around the garages doing the same thing. And... Um, because of my my acquisition budget in council is, is very, very slim. Um, I can't afford to uh, compete with somebody who wants to take home a, a once-in-a-lifetime souvenir 
uh, from the race if they're if they're there as a punter. So uh, yeah, it's not so much parts, but we're lining up cars to borrow for uh, for the visitors to see next time they're at the museum. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present, and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. One of the things that strikes me, and and you have told me before, I'd love you to put some flesh on the bones for our listeners, that the Chaz Mostert um, Pepsi Max Crew Falcon, the car that he crashed in 2015 in that terrible qualifying accident at Forest Elbow where he was injured, there were some marshals at the flag post that he collided with that were, were injured. Thankfully, everybody was okay and, and recovered, and that's the great part of the whole story. But that wreck is sitting... Um, at the exit of the museum, it's pretty much the last thing that you see on your way um, through the exit door. Is that one of the most popular viewed exhibitions because of all of the elements surrounding it? You've got parts of the car on the ground. There's the, the vision of the accident in the background. There's some big blown up photos on the wall. It seems to be like the showstopper because it's got all of those different elements rather than there's a car. It's this kind of a story to the story of the story of the story, even to the point where you have the suit that was cut off him on the day as well as the wrecked car. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's kind of it's it's of its era. It's the iconic Bathurst moment. You know, as much as the ra- motor racing isn't about crashes and, and all of that stuff, that does happen. There is an element, and there are always the shots that get showed on the highlights reels on the kind of look back packages. Mm. You know, you, you think about earlier eras, you think about um, KB rolling the Camaro over, you think of Bill Brown going along the fence in the GT Falcon. And this one is right up there in terms of those iconic moments. Um, and yeah, it stops people in their tracks. We, uh, we found even from when the car was first delivered to the museum, we popped stuff on Facebook and it just got so much traction and so much interest um, because it is, yeah, it's all of those things you say. You know, you look at it, you can see the engineering, you can see the evidence of how hard that car hit. You see the fact that this was a kid at the start of his career, really, as the defending champion and all of a sudden he was in hospital the next year. Um, all of those things make that a fantastic display item, but... It's really great when we have the opportunity to tell the visitors who are standing there kind of staring at this thing, explaining to them, you know, look at the design, you look at the fact that all of the chassis um, roll roll cage tubes are all straight. Um, They changed the design of the seat to prevent the injuries that Chaz suffered straight after that accident. Um, You show the way the cars are built and it really is you get to see a bit of a supercar that no one ever sees. This thing is absolutely stripped to the bare bones and you can see underneath the skin. And it's a fantastic opportunity. And you know, we can't thank Tigford enough for, for providing that to us for a, a display item and obviously you for helping put the uh, put the pieces together on that one. Well, it, it got to the point where that car could have very well gone to supercar scrap heap heaven because they'd already scrapped the Steve Richards crash chassis from uh, – he had an accident at Eastern Creek 2008 – and that chassis had been sitting there right up until pretty much when this one was saved because uh, and, and all the details are in our new Tickford Racing book where we, we tell the story of all the cars from that team over the 20 years. It's um, it's going to be out in time for Christmas. But um, you were very kind to be able to give us some great photos for this book too of when that car was delivered to you. What was that, early 2019 off the top of my head? Yeah, um, it was just it after was, Christmas, I think. Yeah, it was, it was craned off a truck and basically craned in through the side of the museum. It's probably the only car that's ever been craned in rather than being rolled on in on wheels. And look, as a, you know, from the museum perspective, you're very sort of, you're very considered about where you put that because it's a bit hard to move um, and you don't want to snooker at everything else because, you know, as you know, with, with the cars coming and going, we have the ability to go jack things everywhere because it's a it's a big concrete floor. But that one, you put it in the corner and you go, All right, I hopefully only need to move this one once. And uh, <laughs> part of the reason that it is near the exit, apart from the fact that it does tell the story, is that you just know that it's not going to get in the way of moving something else past it. <laughs> yes, it's much easier that way, that's for sure. Do you find that 
as time moves on, here we are this year. It's the 60th anniversary of the race that we now know as the Bathurst 1000. Of course, that so many of our listeners know it was the Armstrong 500 when it came from Phillip Island in, in 63. Do you see that the shifting window of interest from people who come on in, are they are they still looking at the 60s and 70s cars or is there a younger demographic? Are there more people looking at 80s and 90s that is a bit more their era as just the time window moves along? Or do you think people still have that um, embedded memory in those halcyon days of the, the early years of the race? I'm really interested to see what, you, what your thoughts are. Yeah, and that one's tricky. And we're always... Always kind of conscious of that because, you know, you look at the classic era and it's the, the Tiranas and the Falcon Hardtops and, and the earlier stuff before that, the Monaros, the series production stuff, that's a long time ago now. Mm. Um, you know, you look at 60 years of the race and, and supercars is half of that. Yeah. yeah. So that's the 90s cars to, to the current stuff. Um, I guess there's a few dimensions. And one of the things, you know, it, it's a sign of getting old and, and, you know, it happens to all of us. Um when the school kids come in is always the tester. You know, the school kids come in and we've actually got a couple of 12-hour winners, a McLaren and a, a Mercedes SLE. So that's what, the, you know, that's the car that the, the kids gener- sort of gravitate to because that's the, the supercar on the on the, the wall. Um, so, you know, a, a Tirana or a Falcon hardtop for them is, you know, it's a grandpa's car. But <laughs> I think there is definitely a degree... And, you know, you see that with people looking through rose-coloured glasses about the era that they grew up watching the sport. Like, you know, I kind of like the 90s stuff because that's the, the first races I saw up here um, as as a spectator. But equally, that earlier stuff, you know, the Brock, the Moffat, the Johnson, all of those names that effectively made the great race, they still have an incredible amount of pull. Um, I guess you do see perhaps grandpa or dad showing the kid, hey, this is the story and this is the guy. And I was always a fan of Brock or Moffat or Lount or whoever. Um, you know, as the years go by, it's the, the person who watched them in period telling the story to the next generation. But there is definitely um, uh, the other factor, I suppose, is, is what those cars are being used for. In the modern era, you don't get so many relatively recent cars being preserved because they're used for Super 2, Super 3. Um, obviously, there's more collectability in the market at the moment as well. So a lot of those more recent cars aren't going sort of like the older stuff might have stopped racing in touring cars, got turned into a sports sedan, kind of left in a shed. That doesn't really happen anymore. Um, there are probably less cars now given the size of the field, whereas you look back at the 90s and the 80s and the 70s and the field for the race was bigger, so there were more cars. Those cars probably, certainly in that early period, didn't have much of a, a long competition life. They were superseded by the next model much quicker than the modern supercars. But then when you go all the way back to series production, you know, those cars were probably sitting on a used car lot by Wednesday the week <laughs> after the race and just disappeared. And yeah. the least you know about the history of the car you've just bought, the better off you'll be. So, you know, there's there's an interesting mix there too. Uh, and, and that's probably why we've got so many replicas of those 60s cars because the real ones disappeared, uh, you know, into the trade because they were, uh, you know, there was – much easier to do that. But the thing that I find a, a constant all the way through is the fact that the race team always had to sell last year's car to build next year's car. Mm. So, you know, the people, we have a lot of people coming, oh, I wish you had this, or I wish they had kept that. Unfortunately, the economic reality of the sport, and, you know, it was the same in the 60s as it is today, is the race teams can't afford to have a shed full of old cars because they've got to build the next car to win the race. And the results that you get on the top of the podium is, is the only one that matters. And the old cars race results... You know, it's it's not really a thing anymore. No, and I think if anything, time's proven, and it's and the museum's been a big part of this, and I'd like to think V Eight Sleuth's been a part of this too. That people do generally, I think, a bit more now stop and think about that sort of thing rather than the blazing away and just move on to the next thing or re-sticker that car or don't keep that or don't like to the point where you know I loved that DJR Team Penske stripped. Scott McLaughlin's Mustang after it won Bathurst. Every panel that crossed the line first in that race, and regardless of your views on that race and how it all unfolded, what happened with Fabian and Debris, 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 and all that stuff, fact is the 17 car won the race. Now, that's a perfect indication of 
why that's a great idea because look what happened on the Gold Coast two weeks after where he ends up on its side, the thing's absolutely demolished, but and it's since been rebuilt and repaired the rear end of that chassis so it goes to uh, Roger Penske's collection, but it has all the Bathurst winning gear on it, in it, and around it. There's a bit of the metalwork that's been changed to repair it because clearly Penske loves stuff uh, to be in you know great condition. But I think over the journey between the museum, ourselves, and a bunch of other people in the sport, some stuff that may have been lost, that may have not been thought about, that might have just been parked, trashed, whatever, I think people are a bit more attuned these days. And I could only base that off the sheer level of emails and social media messages we get from fans and industry figures who, hey, I've got this, just letting you know, or, hey, do you want this? It's going to go out if uh, you don't take it. There's, I feel like there's been a bit more of that in the last five or ten years than there was in the five or ten before that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it probably also reflects a little bit what's going on in the wider world of classic and collectible cars as well. You know, in the 80s and even the 90s, you'd see things restored back to a standard so much better than they ever would have been from the factory, whether that's a race car, whether that's a a road car or whatever. And then this sort of preservation and this acceptance of the fact that the originality of the car tells the story. You know, anyone can have a kind of chocolate pot, box perfect car if you throw enough dollars at it but if you've got something that's original with its original part with the evidence of its use with the nicks and scrapes and bumps and scratches that it got at a certain point there is a value in that that you can't reproduce Um, and I think yeah that's definitely become a part of the industry now it is becoming much more common you know and I guess the construction of the cars probably lends themselves to that as well Uh, you know the fact that you can just swap the body panels out um means that those ones can be preserved. Um, The challenge there is obviously with a wrapped car versus the old school hand painted, you know, you've got to be a little bit more careful with some of those finishes because they don't last as long from a a preservation, you know, museum hat back on Mm. point of view. Um, But, yeah, it's an interesting shift. Um, And the teams, I guess, are probably seeing uh, some of the significant cars being worth more now because of the collectors rather than going, oh, it's just last year's car and yeah, one Bathurst, but no big deal. You know, you, we've heard heaps of stories on your podcast about, you know, people buying, you know, the Bathurst winner from three years ago to run in Super 2 or Dunlop or whatever and going, oh, it'll be a good investment, but, you know, it's not going to be quite as big a jump on the entry price, whereas nowadays, you know, anything anything that's got a championship or a Bathurst or a significant victory or tied to a significant driver – like that's that's factored in right at the start because everyone knows now that the, those cars and that history um, is is the value in the car, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. anyone can, you know, as I said, anyone can restore it back to better than perfect um, with enough money. But the originality and the story is just as much a part as the actual physical item. And there's a real blend, isn't there, of the stuff that's in the museum when I think of you know, the Shane Van Gisberg and ZB Commodore from the last few years, it's as it finished Adelaide, complete with the guard blown apart, the stuffed tyres from the big burnout. So uh, there's always going to be two trains of thought here. Leave it like that. As he stepped out of it, as he finished with the car in 2022, or and I, and I do know that the, the winning um, panels from Bathurst have been kept and, and it can go back to either of its Bathurst wins, or but do you put it back to its Bathurst win from 20 or 22 with the, the, the panels? Okay, but they're not as they, you know, they are the panels, but it's been changed since. You know, it's that question between having something that looks beautiful and is amazing and is concourse and the originality and then all of the elements and lines in between those, I guess it's horses for courses on what floats your boat or what doesn't float your boat on those two things. And, and look, that that is a fantastic example, that car, because as a car that is, you know, one of only three that's won the great race twice, it's got more wins than anything. So there are any number of really significant moments in the life of that car. So anything other than the way it finished at Adelaide means that you've got to mess with it and change it and upset its originality to return it back to that, you know, significant state. And um, those those three Bathurst, double Bathurst winning cars are probably the hardest ones of all because, you know, any Bathurst win, it's sort of natural. If you're restoring a car that's won Bathurst back to anything, you're going to do a Bathurst win. Then you've got to pick which one and 
all of those cars are a bit different in both both years. The deliveries change and all that sort of stuff. So you've got to make a conscious decision um, exactly what you're doing there. And like any restoration work, like any work that you do in that field, once you've changed it, you can't go back. Um, and that's, I guess, why the, the, the value in some of those unrestored things is so high because no one has gone away from where it was, so you don't need to go back. Mm. Um, and no one's sort of, you know, there's some pretty impressive tradespeople and, and craftsmen out there that are doing this work, but no one's really got a convincing way of making it look like it was when it finished the race. You know, uh, the 2014 Morris car would be a fantastic one. You know, when we've got a replica of that car um, in the museum collection that we use for, you know, driving around and doing the banking and all of that sort of fun stuff. <laughs> as you do, um, as you do. But I think when we when we first put pictures of it up, people were going, oh, it needs more race tape on the front because, you know, the front, <laughs> the front of that car was all race tape and not yeah. much car. Yeah. Um, and you, you can't, you know, I'd love to have a play around and put some, you know, put some stuff on it, but it's always going to look fake. Um, <laughs> you know, no one can really adequately... Um, reproduce the sort of damage and, and destruction that's done to these things after a thousand k's around the mountain. Well, and I don't think Chaz or the dude ever took their race car to the supermarket, so I'm not sure it's in the right situation there for people to really believe it's the uh, the, the real mobile. Just uh, just quietly, just quietly. <laughs> little heads up, little heads up. Hey, what's a regular Bathurst 1000 week for you look like? I know we we've done and we'll do our V8 Sleuth Open night on the Thursday night and. You never seem to sleep during the week of a race up there, particularly the 1,000. What's the, the week entail for you? Because I I reckon that you'd be running on, what, three or four hours sleep a night pretty much. Yeah, look, there's a bit of that. Um, I always tell people I don't see my kids awake very much in race week. You know, it can be, <laughs> can be 36 to 48 hours between, you know, actually speaking to them because, uh, yeah, the hours are long. But, you know, I always also say to people, when the circus is in town, like, where would you want to be? Like, you've got to be here. It's just crazy. And and it is a lot of running on adrenaline. And everyone tied up with the sport and with the event has a degree of that. Um, we're fortunate, as you alluded to before, because we've got so many connections with different areas, we have a whole bunch of things going on. So we have your sleuth night up here on the Thursday night. There's more often than not requests from supercars or event management to have vehicles on display or participating in events. Um, there are council events in town as well that we try and support and have maybe one of the replicas go down. So there's an awful lot of planning things out on the whiteboard and having pieces of paper with where I need to be at any one time and which particular object or car or whatever I need to have with me at that time and then how to get back from dumping that car there so I can go to the next thing. Um, I remember back in 2018, my first year, we had um, car, we had two separate cars in lead-up um, de demonstrations ahead of the race. So I drove our Monaro around at the tail end of the driver's parade and then as soon as that was over, drove it back to the museum, left it outside and then got into the uh, 1963 Cortina to bring it over because Rodney Jane was driving that car around the track as a tribute to, to Bob. Uh, and I sat in the passenger seat in that and then ran back and did something else. And then, um, you know, when the race is on, it's almost like, all right, it's a bit of downtime because then you can't be moving objects around. You can't be taking exhibits around. And then we had cars on display elsewhere. So the week is pretty crazy. There's all sorts of fun events on site and off site. Um, but also keeping a track of what's going on in the museum. You know, there's always people that want to come in and visit. We do have a lot of cars coming and going in and out on loan during that period because the industry is all here. So everyone's here and they go, oh, well, while I'm in Bathurst, I'd like to pick up my car and bring it home. Or, hey, I've got a spare spot. How about I bring this up to you and have it in the museum? So there's a bit of shuffling exhibits um, depending on which year. And this year is a particularly good example, being the anniversary this year is all about history and the museum is all about history. So, therefore, the museum is going to have a huge amount of um, peripheral activity in race week to, uh, to support that. And, and that's fantastic. But, yeah, it, um, there's some long days. There's some long days, that's for sure. Um, but it's all fun. Like, you know, the, the weeks, the week of race week, um, I, I sort of, it takes a bit of decompressing back home, debriefing, and uh, my poor wife probably gets sick of hearing about who I've talked to or where I've been or what I've been doing. But as the, you know, as the race fan that's now on the inside, you get home and pinch yourself and go, I can't believe this. Like, you know, 
I've talked to this person or that person or this driver or, you know, just been in the midst of a situation where I didn't realise that you could actually get to as somebody who has never had a racing licence or driven a race car on a track. And I have to say it's the same for me because with what we both do, I think what it's been able to do is we can kind of be, be a connecting rod between perhaps our, our podcast listeners here and the people who follow V8 Sleuth and read our website and all the stuff that we do who aren't into, you know, they're into the sport as in being fans but don't have that intimate, close connection, hopefully through what you're doing at the museum, through what we're doing, through the things that we do together, we can bring people a bit closer to it than they might otherwise have been. But we've talked about all the good stuff and the stuff that's enjoyable and the stuff that's fun. Would I be right in saying that your greatest moment in five and a half years where you've thought, oh, no, was when Craig Lowndes drove a Monaro across the top of the mountain on national television? Yeah, that Your was, Monaro, uh, your yeah. Monaro replica. <laughs> Not mine, councils. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Um, I had a lot of phone calls from people quite high up in the organisation in the three and a half nanoseconds after that went to air. I didn't realise how many people had my direct phone number, but there you go. Um, yeah, that was that was pretty intense. Um, fortunately, and if it hadn't been me, it would have been in the wall. Absolutely no dramas at all, but he's got a pretty good set of hands and feet. You know, he's, he's done a ride around Mount Panorama over the years, has Craig. So, uh, yeah, that was that was uh, one of those moments you go, man, that was, that was quite a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the sweat on your brow still all these years later. It was a... Yeah. Uh, Craig and I did have a little debrief afterwards, so, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> but sure we, do, we do still get a laugh out of it. Every time I see him, uh, we, we do have a bit of a laugh about the Monaro. And that car is now famous. It's the Craig Lowndes Monaro. It's not, the, it's not the 1968 replica of the winner. It's the Craig Lowndes Monaro. So you've had a few exhibitions over the, the journey, and I think that's one of the great things about the museum and any museum. You've got to keep it fresh. You've got to keep it moving. You've got to keep it evolving. So you've you've celebrated Craig Lowndes. There was uh, a Larry Perkins one as well. Uh, there was a Dick Johnson one at some point along the way. What have you got cooking? What What's your dream exhibition that you'd love to put together in the future that would, if money wasn't an issue, logistics wasn't a problem, what would be the exhibition if if you put your, your Brad race fan hat on and your museum man hat on and said, righto, this is just for me, this one, what are you doing? What's the ultimate exhibition? Do you know, that's, that's really hard. I've probably done bits of it already um, because I've got a bit of a list of all of the kind of amazing cars that are out there and – I've been lucky enough to get a lot of them. And, and in fact, last year we had the Repco Centenary Exhibition and we got the Brabham BT19. And that is, in my view, that is the most significant car in Australian motorsport history because of Jack Brabham, you know, the only world champion to have his name on the front of the car when he won. Um, you know, the value of that car is, um, you know, like telephone numbers and then some. Um, so to have that even just for the race week, that was a, that was a you know, my bucket list gets ticked pretty well with that. Um I guess you know, in a, in a dream world, in a in a kind of all bets are off. There's no rules thing. Um, I look at some of the photos I saw from Le Mans this year from the centenary, and the museum there had the most incredible selection of Le Mans winning sports cars um, that will ever be assembled. I'm, I'm going to guess you know there were fifty something of the real thing in an eighty car exhibition. So you know to get as many Bathurst 1000 winning cars in one place at once would be spectacular. Most of the time, we're anywhere between about seven and ten of those, so that's pretty good going. But to get as many as, as exist, like if you could get every single existing Bathurst 1000 winning race cars in one place, that would be pretty good for a race fan. Um, but I guess what I love and because when we sort of go back to the conversation earlier on about being a museum person and specialisation, my my world is curatorial, so putting exhibitions together. Um, but I've also got a pretty big collection of model cars at home of things I like. And so to be able to kind of do the putting different things on a different shelf thing but in full scale, <laughs> I kind of love that. So um, the fact that we change stuff over it is really good for my kind of, um, I guess, my attention span and my amusement and Somebody came in the other day wondering why things were in a certain order and I said, well, it's because 
they have to be chronological, otherwise my brain doesn't work, you know. Um, I've got the cars, you know, the Monaros and the Tiranas and the Falcons are all intermingled rather than having them in separate corners arguing with each other because that's the way that they kind of, you know, chronologically work. Um, so I get to play with a lot of those fun things. I think there are so many aspects to our sport. So, you know, because we are the National Motor Racing Museum, it's not just about Bathurst. It's not just about Mount Panorama. It's not just about touring car racing and getting the opportunity to play with some other things. You know, uh, we did a big 12-hour and 24-hour exhibition some years ago. I uh, had both the 24-hour winners and five um, GD3 cars in here, which was just spectacular, but some early production car 12-hour um, cars as well. So getting combinations of things that people haven't seen always kind of ticks a lot of boxes for me. At the moment, we've got the two Skyline GDRs, the 91 and the 92 winners, and they don't get seen together very often. So showing people an opportunity to get a full set of something, um, you know, I've probably got a collecting bug genetically and by profession. Um, so having a full set of things is always a good thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's the way that we sort of work in, in the collecting world. Um, so, yeah, once again, you probably get back to that, the full set of all the Bathurst winners is probably the the number one bucket list, never do it, but, man, it would be cool if we did. I reckon you're aiming really high there, every <laughs> Bathurst 1000 winner that exists ever, which makes me think, do you get people coming in and saying, hey, psst, I know where the 68 winning Monaro or the 69 winning Monaro is? Do you, do you get that a bit? Look, you do. Um or a lot of people going, oh, I've heard this, and I go, well, I've only read the same articles that you have. Like um, some of those cars, I, it's almost like the story is so good you don't want to know the reality <laughs> um, because the story is great. You know, that's that's part of the fun of it. You know, it's why people love barn finds because you just never know what's in that rundown old shed. Mm. Um, there are certainly – I've heard some stories about things that um, – you know, cars that have survived or where they are. Or I know where it is, but then you don't get many more details because it's all top secret. Um, that's kind of cool. I like that. Um, it's kind of fun to imagine what if. Uh, you would love to think that either for those those two examples or, or some of the other lost cars were sitting somewhere and no one ever knew and thousands of people have seen these things sitting out in a paddock and their rust's got you – know, there's no paint left on them, but they are the real deal. It would be um, – it's kind of fun to think that that, that actually could happen. It's something that actually I get asked a lot where people say, do you think you've found everything yet? Do you? And I said, well, no, and, I, and you never will because of all those sorts of things and that's what makes, whether it's curating a museum, whether it's creating content for V8 Sleuth or doing podcasts or whatever it is that we do, it's never got a full stop because time keeps ticking, things become old, you can't keep a track of everything and that's the beauty of it all because if we knew what everything was, where it went, what it did, it was all written down, there'd be no charm to it. There'd be no intrigue factor because there's no questions or um, unanswered queries or holes in the story. And quite frankly, that'd be pretty boring, don't you reckon? Oh, for sure. You know, what you can what you can kind of put in your imagination is way better than reality in a lot of these cases, <laughs> you know. Um, the, the sad part is, you know, because of these cars, they were just they were just tools, and they were used up and thrown away. And um, you don't want to necessarily know that. You want you want to have the mystique. You want to have the legend. Um, that that is part of why we're excited. You know, there's probably a degree that we all think that in another situation we could have been the one driving that car. We could have been the one winning the races. We could have done that. And that that's the same thing. You know, I could have bought the car accidentally because you know, or dad dad could have accidentally traded in the family hack and bought a Monaro in a midlife crisis. And oh my god, that's the <laughs> race winner! Like that's so much more fun. Yeah, yeah, those stories and and so many of those stories are absolute bullshit, but <laughs> they're fun. They're absolutely yeah. fun. Yep. They're absolutely yep. fun. Uh, one of the other elements to it all is that um, when you wander around a museum, and I only think about it with um, having been to the Melbourne Museum with my niece and nephew recently, a little while ago now, um, what do you deem cars as? Because I think there's an argument, maybe you might subscribe to it, their artwork to me, they're like a painting on the wall. They're a representation of a period of time, an achievement, um, a, a social movement, a part of the manufacturing world of Australia or whatever it might be. They are pieces of art. Oh, I actually genuinely believe that. Do you do you subscribe to that too? 
Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and, and cars, cars and bikes can be tricky because a lot of their, I guess, a lot of what makes them what they are is the noise and what they did. So there is a degree, and, and I, I hear it and I get it and I understand it, that if you're not operating these things, you're not really preserving the essence of what they are. But equally, there's some of these things out there, and some of them are in this building, and some of them are in other other places all around. That the risk to their originality, to their ability to tell the story, um, is compromised if there's a problem. So if something goes wrong, if you're at an event and you know there's a there's an incident, something fails, or there's a failure of you know the hands and feet on the wheel. Um, and it crashes and writes it off, then that history is lost. So there's a fine line. Um, I think some of these things, you know, the noise that some of these things make, that's that's as much a piece of music as, as the artwork of looking at the, the static car. Um, but they are definitely a, a, an item of fine art rather than a, a cold piece of metal that, you know, it's just a thing. Um, it's a whole lot different to that. I guess people that don't necessarily love cars or race cars or what we love um, would go, oh, it's just a thing. But equally, a lot of us might look at a piece of traditional kind of art, like hanging on a wall of a gallery and go, oh, I don't really get it, like it's just a thing. So, you know, we, we're all into, into different stuff. But for us, yeah, the car's definitely a piece of art. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's uh, it's hard to hang them on the walls, though. Uh, you can hang parts, but not the whole thing. Not the whole thing like a painting. But before we shoot, um, we've had a long-term association with you and, and with the museum, and I've never, ever before had it fed back to me as often as I have with the museum about when I've mentioned on this podcast that it's closed on Tuesdays. Is that the most common thing that you get told feedback-wise from fans who've heard it through the pod or read it online? It seems to be a bit of a movement of people telling you that you're closed on Tuesdays because we told them that you are. Look, I think what you say um, safely is V8 Sleuth listeners self-identified. <laughs> <laughs> because anyone that says you're closed on Tuesdays, I go, I reckon I know how you know that. Um, and actually what I thought that was going to be is what happens on a Tuesday because that's obviously the next big question, isn't it? What does happen on a Tuesday? Because I'm actually at work on a Tuesday. The museum is closed and I'm doing all the stuff that you can't do when there's people in the way. So I'm pumping up tyres and the compressor is really noisy in these big sheds. So it's awful when there's people there. So I just move cars and I pump up tyres and we clean stuff and we do some of the bits and pieces or we get, you know, local tradies in to change light bulbs and fix the plumbing and all of the boring stuff that just doesn't fit into normal life. But then in school holidays, we're open seven days a week and if you come at the end of the January school holidays, you probably go, oh, some of these tyres are looking a bit soggy. That's because I don't get to pump them up on a Tuesday. <laughs> That'll be exactly why. That'll be exactly yep. why. But Bathurst 1000 Race Week, Tuesdays open? Tuesdays open. Uh -huh. In fact, extended hours during Bathurst 1000 Race Week and we'll be putting all of those details on our Facebook page so that people can make sure while they're here, particularly this year for the 60th anniversary, to come into the museum and check out what's new and what we've got to, uh, to show off. There's always something new. There's always something to show off. Uh, Brad, thanks for the time. We look forward to seeing you at the mountain this year. I can't wait, Nunes. I'm really looking forward to this year, but I always do. Save me a seat at the V8 Sleuth Open Night, though. I might need it. You've got the one up the front, mate. Oh, really? Do I, yeah. Am I up the front again for the yeah. what, seventh year or so in a row? It's just a, it's a streak. I don't know how it happens. I think I've actually got a chair with your name on it. Well, actually, before we go, just very quickly, you have reminded me of a topic that I just wanted to cover off before we finished our chat occasionally when there's been former winners of the race and legends and icons of the sport visit the museum, you've got them to sign something at the museum. But it's not what you would normally expect. In other places, it would be a poster or a, a print or a maybe a nice big, huge piece of cardboard. Oh, I'm not sure. But the museum at Bathurst has had the signatures of various legends but in a very – different place. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? So this is a story that goes right back to the opening of the current museum in 1993. And the way that the story has been told to me by the person who instituted this 
interesting tradition was that she didn't really have an office. She didn't have anywhere that would be a suitable place to memorialise. And the first two people who fit the legend category were, were two of the biggest names and they were here to open the museum in 1993 and that was Mr Brock and Mr Moffat. And, you know, by 1993 that relationship had become a lot of fun. They weren't, you know, highly uh, competitive and, uh, you know, the good guy and the bad guy, no matter which side of the divide you're on there, um, and they had a bit of fun. So what Sue, who was the museum manager at the time, got them to do was to sign the wall in the ladies' toilet because why else? But she said that was the closest thing she had to an office at that point um, before, the, before the rest of the museum was extended. And over the years, there's been some uh, interesting people visit the ladies' toilet. Um, some of them have descended into um, you know, more basic humour than others. Some of them have just, I think, signed their name and got out of there as quick as they could because they went, this is a pretty weird situation to be in. Um, now, the tricky bit there is we actually had those toilets renovated three years ago and the builders hated me because I said I'd like you to remove those pieces of plasterboard intact and we're in the process and hopefully by race week we will have them on display behind glass but that just means we have to find another suitably difficult location to um, you know for people to put their own signatures on but somewhere we can get some more legends to sign so we are working on that and we'll we'll need to get a couple of more legends to visit the museum and decide where that spot's going to be. Ladies, when you make a pit stop at the National Motor Racing Museum this year, keep your texters in your bag, though. Don't, you know, we don't need to start a new wall. Well, the funny thing was, I didn't know. I'd worked here three or four weeks. My wife came up to visit me at work and walked out and went, are there signatures in the men's toilet? And I went, what are you talking about? I've never been into the, la- went into the ladies' toilet and was absolutely blown away. So I hadn't even noticed. No one had told me. It was just a thing. And for a while there, you know, the... The girls were the only ones that knew and the boys didn't realise that it was a thing. It's a thing. It was a, thing. a thing. It was a thing. Uh, Brad, thanks for the chat. Good to catch up with you. We'll, uh, we'll see you on the mount in October. Sounds great, Nance. I'll see you then, mate. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Pod. A look behind the scenes at the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama, of course. If you're in town for Repco Bathurst 1000 Race Week or any other week during the year in the other 51, drop in and take a look around. Right. That's me done with this special bonus Bathurst 1000 week episode of the V8 Salute podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car? best suited to. Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.